Ladies, today we have a very interesting topic, a very powerful topic. And Bezat Hashem, Hashem should give the right words. Because if this comes out right, this is a game changer. I'm here today to tell you something you already know. But boy, am I going to try to stress it. I'm here to tell you how much your Father in Heaven loves you. And I'm also here to tell you that because we are who we are, we have this unbelievable obligation to become very big people. I'm hoping that after this class, we won't be able to stay small ever again. So listen to this amazing Gemara. <clears throat> the Gemara tells us in Masechi Ketubot, Andav Samach Bet Amud Bet. Reb Chia, one of the Gedolim of his generation, had a son. His son was up for marriage. At that time, there was another great Gadol by the name of Rabbi Yosef ben Zimra. Rabbi Yosef ben Zimra had a wonderful daughter who was also of marriageable age. So the son of Reb Chia turns to his father and he says, Abba, I would like that if you ask for the hand of marriage from the daughter of Rabbi Yosef ben Zimra. So Reb Chia goes and speaks with Rabbi Yosef ben Zimra and they put the Bazra, they put the Shiduch together. And sure enough, the next day, Reb Chia's son, Reb Yosef ben Zimra's daughter, meet for the first time. And that night is the Lachaim. See, they used to know how to do it. <laughs> In those years. Wow. I'll tell you the truth. You have to understand. The mindset in those years was very different. Very different. In those years, I think, they were looking more to see what the boy knew than what the boy had. And because of that, here we are. The Gemara tells us it was the night of Tnaim. And they were making up the conditions. They were about to start the engagement between Reb Chia's son, Reb Yosef ben Zimmer's daughter. They were about to start and begin the Tnaim. And after they broke the glass, like they once did once upon a time, and I'm sure he gave her a wonderful ring, at that moment they were engaged and the deal was done. What were the terms of the engagement? Says the Gemara, Reb Chia's son agreed that he's going to go to Yeshiva and learn for 12 years. And then at the end of the 12 years, they were going to get married. Now talking about a long engagement. <laughs> wow. But that's the way they looked in those days for a chatan. The way they looked for a chatan is, how great is he? And how great will he be? Not so much how much he has. It's funny, if you would speak to many of my alumni from my first graduating class back in 2012. Once upon a time, I remember one, one afternoon, my 12th graders turned to me and said to me, out of a joke, just as a joke, but there was a spicy group. They said to me, Rabbi, so uh, what type of guy are you looking for for your daughter? I said, gentlemen, back off. They said, no, 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 Rabbi, we just want to know what type of girl, what type of guy you're looking for for your daughter. I said, guys, I'll be honest with you. You want to know the type of guy I'm looking for? I'm looking for a guy who's a real Talmud Chacha. I'm looking for a guy that the Torah is running through his veins day and night. Because I've been out there in the world. 
and I've seen all different types of mixes and matches of people. And the only insurance plan that I really can bank on on my own daughter, that I know I can go to sleep at night, comfortable, knowing that she's in the hands of somebody really good, that's really taking care of her, is someone who's connected to a constant learning of Torah. And without that, I'm not comfortable anymore. I've seen the most finest of people from the finest of families with the greatest of midot. And then somehow or other, if Torah wasn't in the mix, things just weren't as smooth as they always appeared to be. And it doesn't matter what that may be, whether it be financially, whether it be midot, whether it be characteristic, if they're missing this element of Torah, they're missing the insurance plan that I, Dovi Ben Shushan, will not be able to sleep at night knowing my daughter is in the hands of this guy. They were very taken. Really? That's really what you're looking for? Or sketch? No, no. I said, no, no. That's really what I'm looking for. No, but Rabbi, you're not looking for a house on Ocean Parkway and you're not looking for a dowry. I said, no, no, no. Just a guy who's going to be the real deal. I'm looking for five mesechtot. One guy looked at the other guy. Ah, five mesechtot. Five mesechtot. It's funny, if my son-in-law would be sitting here now, he'd be laughing. We got him on three mesechtot. We were running a sale that week. No, I'm joking. But that's what we were looking for. That's what they once were looking for. And that really represents the idea of this Gemara that I just told you about. The son of Reb Chia, who the night of his engagement, he goes to yeshiva to learn for 12 years. Because at the end of the 12 years, he's going to be the person that Reb Yosef ben Zimra is going to be able to sleep well at night knowing that his daughter is in the presence of someone who is a real Ben Torah. Well, listen to the end of this story. Ladies, you're going to love this story. This story is for you. So the next morning, Rebchia's son goes to yeshiva. That was the deal. And he starts to learn. And Rebchia's son is going to be the next Rebchia, the next Gadol Hador. And he learns unbelievable. And that night, Rebchia's son comes home from yeshiva. And who does he bump into on the street? His kala. He sees her walking by, his bride. Rebchia's son come home. He comes and he says, Dad, Abba, um, could we change it from 12 years to 6 years? Rabbiya says, you want to cut down the engagement time? He said, yeah. He says, okay, I'll let the other side know. The next day, Rabbiya's son goes back to yeshiva. He goes back and he's sitting and learning Yomam Valayla. The next night, he comes home from yeshiva. As he's coming home, he passes by his kala on the street again. He sees her. He comes to his father. He says, Abba, can we change it from um, six years to three years? His father said, if that's what you want, okay. I'll let the other side know. The next day, Rebchia's son goes back to yeshiva. He's learning up a storm. And the next night, he comes home, and sure enough, there she was in the street as he passes her by. I think she was stalking him. But, but I don't know, whatever. He, <laughs> he passes by. And there she was in the street. And he sees his kala. He comes home and he says to his father, 
I can't do it. I need to marry her now. Not 12 years, not six years, not three years, and not even another week. I want to marry her now. Rabbi said, okay. Rabbi goes to Rabbi Yosef ben Zimra, and they made the wedding that Friday afternoon. You remember the old days? Today we don't see this anymore. In the old country they do this. I saw it in Israel. They used to make weddings Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon was the chuppah. And then right after the chuppah, they would make it late actually, so it would go kind of right, right up to Shabbat. So the chuppah would be over right before Shabbat. And then the Friday night meal was the wedding se'udah. It was the wedding meal. Everybody in the town would come out to this se'udah. This was the wedding se'udah. Now, what did they do with the dancing? I don't know really exactly, but probably they danced by the chuppah. But the Friday night Shabbat meal was the wedding se'udah. That was the wedding night. And that's the way Reb son married the daughter of Reb Yosef ben Zimra. It went from the longest engagement in history of the proposed 12 years all the way down to the shortest of maybe three or four days. The Gemara tells us that the son of Reb comes to his father and he says, Abba, I'm so embarrassed in front of you. I know you're probably thinking that what type of son do I have? Look at this guy. What a baltava. We're supposed to learn for 12 years. He couldn't even wait out four days, three days. He says, Abba, I know you're probably thinking of me very... I have big shortcomings, you probably think. You think that uh, I, I have no control over myself. Reb turns to his son and says, Not true. You're wrong. Matter of fact, because of what you did, I have a bigger respect for you than before. Really? How's that? Reb tells his son, what you did emulated God. Hashem did exactly what you did. You did exactly what Hashem did. He said, really, how is that? Reb tells his son, the pasuk says, Tivi'emo v'tita'emo. Tivi'emo, I will bring you forward. V'tita'emo, and I will plant you. Behar nahalatecha, on the mountain of your inheritance, on Harabait, meaning the Bet HaMikdash, Hashem's original plan. We were going to be taken in the Midbar for 40 years, brought to Israel, and only there on Harabait in the Bet HaMikdash, He was going to marry us, settle down with us, and be with us. That was a 40-year engagement. And then finally the marriage was going to be on Harabayit. It was going to be the building of the home of the Bet HaMikdash, of husband and wife, God Tiviachol, and the Jewish people. However, Hashem said, I can't wait. Klal Yisrael, you are too unresistible to me. I can't hold myself back. Nonetheless, says God, right now. Let's make a house. Let's get married right here in the Midbar. I can't wait. We were supposed to be engaged for 40 years. We were going to go to Israel and get married. We were going to get married on the great mountain of God. We were going to get married in the Bet HaMikdash. That was supposed to be our home. Hashem says, I can't wait. 
I can't wait the 40 year engagement. I can't wait for Israel. I can't wait for the Bet HaMikdash. Klal Yisrael, you're so unresistible to me. I need and only to marry you right now in the desert. Right now, in a makeshift mishkan. Let's rest together right here, right now. I can't go on without you. Says Rebchia to his son, you did exactly what God did. God had a proposed long engagement, but yet found his kala unresistible. So did you. So you have nothing to be ashamed about. What you did, Hashem did. But ladies, I need to bring home to you something now unbelievably powerful. Look into what we just said. Do you know what we just said? Hashem couldn't find the Jewish people more tempting and unresistible that he couldn't wait to be with us. When? When did he tell us to build the Mishkan? When did he find us unresistible? When did he say, I must marry you now? We built the Mishkan right after the story of the Egel. What? You believe that? We did an Egel. We did the worst of worst of a sin. The Egel was talked by the rabbis and by the Torah, similar to a concept of a kala who's under her chuppah and somehow or other was disloyal to her chatan. I mean, do you get a worse sin than that? Moshe Rabbeinu took the luchot and he threw it down and broke it. And he threw it down and broke it because the luchot was the kitubah. It was the contract of marriage. So what did Moshe do? He broke the contract of marriage. So we won't look, be looked upon as a married woman who was disloyal. Because then we're finished. A married woman that's disloyal? It's death. Chayamita. So quickly Moshe threw down the luchot and broke it like this. The marriage was null and void. So then already we're still forgivable. Could you imagine doing such a tremendous sin like the Egel? And right after that sin, God forgives us like we read. Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum Echanon, Er Chapayim Rab Chesed Ve'emet. Moshe Rabbeinu invokes the 13 Midot of Rahamim. God turns around and says, on the great day of Kippur, Salachti Kidvarecha, I forgive you. We're letting this go. Moshe Rabbeinu says, that's not enough. I don't want you just to forgive them. I want you to go back and be with them the way the relationship once was. I want to bring back the love. Hashem says, you want to bring back the love? Build me a Mishkan. I want to marry them right now. Wow, after such a sin, and God, you still find us unresistible? After such an Averav and Egel, and you still find the Jewish people so unbelievably unresistible that he says, I don't want the 40-year engagement. I'm not going to wait to Har Nachalatecha. I'm not waiting for Har Abayit. I'm going to marry you right now in the Midbar. If Hashem, after such a tremendous sin, still finds us so unbelievably unresistible that he couldn't wait for us and he married us in the Midbar. It teaches every one of us that his love for every Jew is beyond anything human that we could understand. And you need to know this. Because if you don't know this, you don't know what it means to be a Jew. To be a Jew means to be the most beloved and precious, unresistable being in God's eyes. So the next time you have an issue, stop running to all these ridiculous people. 
Hashem's standing there and it says, you're unresistible to me. I want to do anything for you. I'm here for you. I, I, I forgive all the sins for you. And you know what we say to God? Yeah, 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 Hashem. Do me a favor. Just stand over there for a minute because I, I need to go in and talk to this lawyer. Just give me five minutes. I, I, I'll be done with him and I'll, and I'll talk to you. Or I have an issue with this or that. I run to this person for help. Or that person for a loan. Or that person for etzah. And this person for advice. And we keep pushing God aside. Yeah, 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 five more minutes. Let me just finish with this person. And then Hashem says, what's up with you? All the people you're running to, they work for me. Huh. What are you wasting your time? Don't you see who's standing in front of you? The one that finds you beyond unresistible, who will do anything for you and even forgive the worst of sins. And by the way, I have to say this. One of the biggest tricks that Yetzir Hara comes to a person and tries to convince a Jew, don't bother doing Teshuvah, it's not going to help anyways. Don't bother being better. God knows what you did. Don't bother praying to God. He's not going to give it to you because he knows what happened last week. He knows what you did last summer. He knows what happened last year. It's all a farce. Let this be the biggest teaching lesson. We fell into the worst sin in history. Not only did God forgive us for the Egel, but after that, he found us so unresistible that he canceled the 40-year engagement plan and insisted to marry us right then. You have to know this. So no matter what God forbid we fall to in life, no matter what we tripped over in life, and we all trip, we're human. We fall seven times and we get up every time, but that's the secret. We believe in the love of Hashem and we can get up again and again and again. And He forgives us and He shows us the unresistible, selfless love of Hashem. This is what we need to take out of these parashiot. Such a positive message that we can go to Him with anything, no matter what we've done, and the unresistible love is always there. Aye, so it's with this that I need to take this now to another level because listen to this Kutzka Rebbe. Ah, I love the Kutzka Rebbe. Kutzka Rebbe is one of my favorite. Everything he says is so sharp and so witty and so on the money. Listen to what the Kutzka Rebbe, the Kutzka Rebbe once said, someone asked him. They once asked the Kutzka Rebbe, where can you find Hashem? Answers the Rebbe, wherever you let him in. What an answer. Hmm. Where do you find Hashem? The answer is, wherever you let him in. I'd like to talk to you about this for a moment. Wherever you let him in, that's where you'll find him. Because the moment you let him in, he's there. Oh, is he there? He's there more than anybody you've ever met. And he's there to help better than anyone you ever know. And he's more hooked up than anyone you think is connected. I guarantee you that. You just got to let him in. Where do you find Hashem? Wherever you let him in. About seven years ago, a very great tzaddik in Israel by the name of Chacham Sasi passed away. I was very close with him. Zimbikubal, tzaddik. He was blind. But in spite of his blindness, 
His eyes were able to see from one side of the world to the next. Could you imagine how ironic that is? A tzaddik who's blind, but yet his sight is, <laughs> is amazing. I could tell you stories will make your hair stand. It's unbelievable. Nonetheless, he passed away. And myself and a good friend of mine, together we jumped on a plane to Israel to try to see if we could make the, uh, the Levaya. We didn't make the Levaya, but we were able to sit with the family. So when I got on the plane, because it was really last minute, I, I grabbed any seat they were going to give me. Generally, I'm a little bit, you know, I like a window, eh, whatever. Hashem, in his unbelievable sense of humor, always sits me on the plane next to someone that I know I'm not going to get to sleep. Generally, I end up sitting next to a priest. Generally, I end up sitting next to a nun. Somebody, someone who just when you thought I'd have just a few hours, just to knock out, just to be able to, so when you get on the trip, you know, once you get to Israel, I don't know about you ladies, when I get to Israel, there's no sleeping going on. I mean, I'm, I'm at 5 o'clock in the morning by the Kotel Vatikim, and at night I'm trying to get into every rabbi that I can get into till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. There's no sleeping. We're just running and running and running and running and running. And then when the trip is over, clonk. But that's, that's the way to use Israel as an American. If you're not living there, you've got to squeeze the juice out of every single moment of that opportunity. That's why when uh, we bring up uh, vacations to my wife, she said, anywhere but Israel, please. You don't know my husband. He's a madman when he gets there. Anyway, so I got on this plane and I sat down and I was so happy because I was seated on the aisle. And this time, I just you not. I'm telling you, emet, emet. I was sitting on the aisle and the priest was sitting against the window. This time there was a whole seat in between him and me. Separation between church and state. You get it? <laughs> so, so there was a whole seat between him and me. Israeli guy comes walking down the aisle. He jumps into the middle seat. Ah, You're such a Rahman. He'll pick on the Israeli guy in the middle. And me, I'll be able to sleep. Like that's what Yaakov Avinu told his kids. One army will fight and the other one will get away. I'll be the one this time to get away. I can sleep. Ah, it's great. And then the Israeli gets on his cell phone. And I hear him say before we take off. He calls one of his friends. Wallak tireta mazal sheli. Efa ani yoshev. Ine ani yoshev ben komer verabai. Oy, oy, oy. The guy's crying. He's crying to his friend. Look where they put me on the plane. I'm stuck between a priest and a rabbi. Sounds like one of those jokes. You know, the, the priest and the rabbi jokes. Sounds like one of those jokes. Now, I may believe I didn't speak Hebrew. Because it makes things easier. I'm telling you, this from experience over the years. They know if they have to talk to you in English, then there goes the conversation, and we leave it to two, three sentences, and then I can, again, I can sleep. Which is all I wanted to do in the first place. So I start faking the sleep. I start dropping my head. I start doing the modima nachnulachs. I start dropping my head, just so no one talked to me. And of course, of course, this Israeli guy gives me the elbow a little bit, and I turn around, and he tells me, Shalom. I said, Hello. He says, I am the last Apikores in Am Yisrael. I said, oh, Shalom Aleichem Apikores. Mashroncha. He says, Baruch Hashem. He tells me in a joking way, of course, in a joking way. 
And then he starts talking. And I'm thinking to myself, did I do better or worse? I don't know. Instead of the priests, I ended up with the apicotes. We start talking because, you know, I don't want to turn off the guy. He was already off, I'm saying, but I don't want to turn him off further. So we're talking back and forth. And then finally, finally, he turns to me and he says to me, I always wanted to know something about God. So I said, so why don't you ask the priest? I figured if I passed the ball, I'd get a five-minute recess because this guy was nonstop. This guy was machine gun Joe. He was nonstop. So he says, okay, I'm going to ask the priest. He turns to the priest and he says, Father, the priest says, yeah. I want to ask you a question about God I always wanted to ask. He says, okay, what's your question? He says, tell me the truth. Do you really, really believe that God's involved in every single detail of your life, of my life, of his life, of the whole world's life? Do you really believe that he's really involved in every single detail? So the priest said to him, yes, I do. He said, how could you believe that? How is that possible? Really? How do you believe that? The priest turns to him and tells him, I'll tell you why. He says, because God is love. And love is God. And God and love is love and God and God and love and love and God and God and love and God and love. And I was thinking, where's he going with this? While I'm faking sleeping, where's he going with this? Now, the Israeli who's trying to understand what he's talking about also didn't get where he's going with this. Till finally the Israeli looks at the priest and says to him, but God doesn't love me and I don't love him. So the priest says, how could you say that? God loves you. And he says, no, he doesn't. And they're fighting it out. I'm saying, guys, keep knocking each other out. I'm just going to sit here, quiet and relax. Finally, they saw they ain't getting anywhere. The whole love and God and God's speech just didn't cut it. So the priest turns to the Israeli guy and says to him, why don't you ask the rabbi? I said, oh, really? Come on. I passed you the ball for a reason. Really? So the Israeli guy looks at me and says, so Rabbi. You know the way. So Rabbi. Mataomer. What do you say? You really believe that God is involved in every detail of life? I look at the guy and I said to him, listen, the reason why you have such a hard time believing is because you believe in a very, very small God. I, I believe in a very, very big God. A kol yachol. A God that is so big and so great that to be involved in every minute of mine and your life is katana love. It's nothing to Him. If you believe in a very, very big God, then it's very easy to believe what you're asking. The guy looked at me. Kacha. And he says, that makes sense. Zegyoni, that's logic, it makes sense. But said there, he tells me. The guy turns back and sits back, and he's quiet. I couldn't believe it. For the rest of the flight, the guy didn't say one word to me. If I would have known this in the beginning of the flight, I would have told him <laughs> before, land, before takeoff. So Baruch Hashem, 
I was able to go back to sleep, which is all I wanted anyways. But ladies, listen to this. At the end of the flight, when we landed, everyone got up, started grabbing down their hand luggage from the overhead bins. I really thought the Israeli was going to say something to me. But it wasn't him who said a word to me. Not even when we got off. It was the priest. The priest rushed up behind me as we're going down the aisle. And he said, Rabbi, Rabbi, one second. I wanted to say something to you. I wanted to tell you something. But I didn't want the other guy to hear it. I said, yeah. Yeah, Father. What, what's, what's up? He says, I just want to tell you. When he asked me that question, I knew the answer you gave. And I could have given the same answer. The reason why I didn't is, is because I preach it, but you live it. That's why you were able to give that answer, not me. I believe in a very, very big God. And that's what makes us Jews. This is the difference between Judaism and Christianity and any other religion. We believe in a very, very big God. Says the Katskarebi, where do you find Hashem? The answer is, you know where you find Hashem? Wherever you let Him in. How do you let in such a big God to such a small person? And the answer is, once you let Hashem in, you could never remain small again. And this is my message for you today, and I want you to hear this. We believe in such a big, big Hashem, big God, that when you let Hashem into your life, you can't stay small anymore. You can't remain small. Suddenly, when Hashem comes in, Hashem gives you such an inspiration, such a koach, that suddenly you start hearing this voice. You start getting this feeling where suddenly you start hearing, go help this person. Did you pray today? Go do this. Go do that. Suddenly we start getting such a guidance that automatically we start becoming big. Why do we become big? Because we believe in a very big God. And the minute you let Him in, that's the minute that we have no choice. <laughs> you can't stay small anymore. Do me a favor, can we do that after the class? Because it's very disturbing. I'm sorry. We believe in this very strongly. And this really separates us from everybody else. This is what Judaism demands. Judaism demands that when we let in Hashem, we suddenly become a very big people. When you're Jewish and observant and God-fearing, you can't stay small anymore. Suddenly your life takes such a big turn where you're not going to be the people. You know, it's so funny to me where our goals and our priorities in life today became so small. Where today, you know, we go out, we look for a guy. Or we go out and we look for someone that we think is doing well. Look at their life. They get up at the morning at 7 o'clock. They quickly pray. They're on the train. They're working all day. They come home late. 
They conk out on the table. They have a supper. They sit down in the lazy boy with the remote in one hand and the beer in the other hand, and they watch TV till three o'clock in the morning, roll off, start over the day the next day, and do it all over again. They go to sleep, they wake up. They work all day. They come home, watch TV. Go to sleep, wake up, work all day. Come home, watch TV. Wow, what a life! Wow, what a guy! Wow! What do you mean, Rabbi? He has a good job. What do you mean, Rabbi? Kolakavadi has a good job. But is that what you're doing to God's plan of a Jewish people? If you believe in that style of living, you believe in a very small God. Very small. That's all he can come up for you? That's the whole deal? This is Judaism at its best? Waking up, going to work, going to sleep. Waking up, going to work, going to sleep. If that's all the life entails. No, but Rabbi, I'm driving to work in a Lexus. That's all God can give you? We took this unbelievably big, huge God who can do everything. He's the Kol Yachol. And we bring him inside of us. How could you fit a big God into a small person? You can't. So automatically we become big people. You think that the plan he wanted was just to be able to have a job and make a few dollars and drive two cars with a house and deal and that's it? Baruch Hashem le'olam, amen v'amen, Kaddish? Maybe it is Kaddish. At that point we should say Kaddish. If that's what life was meant and all about. We took such a big, big God and we tried to put him into such a small life, such a small person. His plan for us was so much bigger. You see, you know what's beautiful about this message? Most of the time when a rabbi, a speaker gets up and gives a message, he says the message, he says the concept, and then it's his job, which sometimes it's even a harder part, to come up with life applications in reality. The beauty about this message is the message is also the application. You see, because the Kutzka Rebbe was right, the minute you let Hashem in, the minute you let such a big God into such a small person, automatically you become big because the voice inside of you doesn't let you stay small. Listen to that voice. That's the voice of a neshama that's screaming out, come big. Why stay ordinary? Why be vanilla pudding? Why be like everybody else? I tell this to all my guys when they graduate. You're going to be working for the rest of your life. Go to Israel for six months. Experience Kiddushah. Detox. Get out of here. See what life is. See what people are. See that there's a world beyond Avenue X to Quentin. There's actually a world. You're not going to fall off. There's actually a world. Go out there. Look what a yeshiva is. Look what learning day and night is. Get away from the distractions. Get rid of the phone. Get away from the girlfriends. Learn to learn for real. Taste the holiness of Israel. Taste the Kotel one Thursday night. A Vatikin in the morning. See what Kevin Rachel looks like at 2 o'clock in the morning. Go to the Banyas. Go up the Tzrat. Dip in the Arizal's Mikveh. Go dance around the Balachado Kever. Kever. 
go stand by Maran Shulchan Aruch and tell him, I want to learn, help me, I want to understand the halacha. Go to the kever of Chacham Ovadia and beg him that he should be Melitz Yoshef for our generation as the leader that he was of us. That he'll continue to pray for us. He'll continue to ask for us. Take six months and live. It'll make you big. It'll break you out of this little small bubble that we're living in and give you such a different outlook at life at how big it is and how big we could be. I believe in a very, very big God. And like the Kutzka Rebbe said, the minute you let him in, you can't fit a big God into a small person. You can't stay small. Suddenly we become big people. And that's what we were meant to be. We were meant to be a chosen big people, not like everybody else. And all those people you see chasing everybody else, they have a very small outlook on life. They'd rather stay small. They'd rather stay vanilla pudding ordinary. Not me and not you. Did I tell you what happened last Saturday night with the big party in Long Island on Puri? I didn't tell you. Ah, oh, we didn't have a class, you're right. It was the day after Purim, and I was out for the count. You're right. You're absolutely right. It was Ben Shushan Purim. You're right. You're right. That's one day that I take off. You're right. I want to tell you what happened. I want to tell you what happened. For two weeks, I was literally crying. I was praying to Hashem that this party that was going down out in Long Island on the night of Purim, a party of close to 2,000 Kids, 2,000 kids, boys and girls, all types of DJs, all Jewish kids. They called it a Purim party. Could you imagine that? A Purim party. It's funny how the way we got into the problem of Purim in the first place was through the party of Ahasuerus. And how did they look to celebrate Purim? with the party that got us into the problem in the first place. It's like trying to celebrate Pesach with bread. Good luck. That's the way you can celebrate Purim with the party of sins, which was this very party. I was praying for two weeks that that party gets shut down. I was praying for two weeks to find the kid who's arranging and running the party. I was kind of in a little way headhunting. I was making phone calls, calling kids, who knows, finally. Three days left to the party, three days before Purim. So the day before Tanit Esther, I found who the kid was. And I tracked him down, and I happened to know who the kid, I know the kid. Wasn't a stranger, I happened to know the kid. I couldn't believe it was him who was doing it. And I made a trip out, and I sat down with the kid. And I poured my heart out to the kid, I begged him. Please, don't do it. Please. I said, Rabbi, I'm not doing it for the party. I'm doing it for the money. I said, yeah, I know that. I'd love to tape you now. Let all those kids out there hear. Let them hear. That all these people that put these parties together, they don't care about you. They don't care about the party. They just care about the money. They don't care about Purim. They just want to grab an excuse to make a party that they could hit up these kids for $20, $30, $50 a head, bring in a thousand kids. That's money. So 
they're willing to trash all these kids on a holy day and send them to Gehenam for a few bucks. It's called making a deal with the devil. That's what it's called. And I told this kid, don't make the deal with the devil. Make a deal with me. Now, ladies, you'll laugh. I have two cents in my bank account. But I pulled out my checkbook. I put it on the table and I signed the check. And I told the kid, fill out the number of what this party cost you in expenses. You will not walk away losing one cent. But I promise you, you will walk away gaining more than life can offer to you. Hashem knows that you're in a test of 2,000 kids. You could save these kids on Purim. Cancel the party. You won't lose a nickel. You won't lose a nickel. Please, don't do it. Don't be chote umachti. That means don't sin, and even worse, make others sin. That's the worst of the worst. That's the worst. He says, no, Rabbi, it's not like that. I would never take money from a rabbi. I said, you'll be doing me the biggest favor in the world. Take the money. Just cancel the party, please. We spoke for hours. Finally, he was moved. Finally, he agreed. He agreed. He says, I agree with you. The party is a really bad idea. I didn't realize what I was doing. And you're right. From what you described to me now, it's not worth the money. But Rabbi, it's too late. I can't cancel it. It's three days before the party. I can't call it off. I can't call it off. They'll, they'll lynch me. They'll kill me. They're relying on... He said, now he's a martyr. They're relying on me to deliver this awesome party. You know what I mean? I said, please. I got so upset after hours and hours and hours. I said to the kid, you listen to me well. You are not going to profit on the sins of innocent Jewish kids. I'm telling you, you're not only not going to make a nickel, you're going to lose bad. And with that, I picked up my blank check that was worth as much as it was filled out, nothing. And I walked out, and I was broken. I was so hurt. This kid could have, oh, what he could have, what he could have saved. Well, Putin went on. And I believe in a big God. And he knows that I prayed to him two weeks for this. And Saturday night came, and after Megillat Esther, I announced to all my guys, gentlemen, it's up to you. You can go to Ahasuerus, or you can come to your Rebbe. It's up to you. I've been telling that to my 11th and 12th graders for weeks, and the guys in the shul, and everybody. It's up to you. And Baruch Hashem, that night, I got this amazing Chazan, great guy, wonderful guy, really. Uh, what's his name? His name is Yochai Cohen. Unbelievable. I love this guy, Really. Brought him to my house. They brought in a few cases of wine, bottles of wine. And the guy started dancing. It was supposed to end at 1 o'clock. It went till 3 a.m. They didn't want to stop dancing. They had the times of their life. They had such an amazing time. <coughs> at 1 o'clock in the morning, four guys come walking into the party. And they pull me over on the side. And they say, Rabbi, you drunk? I said, yeah, a little bit. He said, good. So before we ask you for the, the blessing, we need to tell you something. We just came from Long Island. And yeah, we stopped into the party. And Rabbi, I want to tell you what happened. The party was called for midnight. It started at 12. 
at 12.15, two kids got into a terrible fight. One kid pulled out a knife. The other kid started fighting with all his boys. It turned into, instead of a party, a gang fight. The girls were all horrified of what was going on. The cops showed up five minutes later. The party was completely shut down. And this poor kid who should have listened, the cops fined him $5,000 for underage drinking. I feel terrible for the kid. I don't want you to take this the wrong way. But there was no money to be made at the end of that night. Let's just put it at that. Shema Yisrael. I believe that he does watch on every detail, on every person, in every way, on whatever we need. We just have to let him in. And we have to turn to him and say, hey, this is on you. I'm giving this up to you. You're the one in charge. And the moment you do that, you let such a big God in. That's the moment that we can't stay small anymore. You can't fit a big God into a small person. Suddenly we become big. Suddenly we start going out there and doing things that we didn't even know we were capable of. And it's not us. It's Him. But now He's in us. So now we become a big people. We become a Jewish people. Suddenly we start looking at organizations being built by people we never thought was possible. Suddenly we start doing chesed for people. We start helping people. We start being more sensitive to people. We turn around and we look at ourselves. Wow, you know, I... I can't believe I'm doing this stuff. Hashem is really helping me. Yeah, Hashem is really helping you. Guess what? You're a big person. You know, we have a lady here that comes every Shabbat, Marsha Carey. You know Marsha. She's by every single Chinese auction. I, I, my life, I thought I was by every single Chinese auction because I'm probably one of the last rabbis that are doing it. But I meet her by every Chinese auction, Marsha. She sits right here on Shabbat. And she's there, spending her whole day selling tickets, getting prizes, another organization, another organization. I said, Marsha, look at you. Look what you became. You became an icon in raising money for chesed and siddaka. And she says, I love doing it. Hashem gave me such a, such a fulfillment in helping people that this is my biggest thing in life. She became a big person because she let in a very big God. It's a secret. Don't try to control the situation. Be in control. Open up and let Hashem in. And then when you find Him, you found a very big God. But guess what? You found an even bigger self. Suddenly you become somebody really big. Live big. That's what it means to live as a Jew. Ah, Hashem loves us. And wow, does he protect and watch over every detail. And wow, the love that he showed us after that Egel, how we still were unresistible to him, even after the worst sin, that he needed to marry us right there and then. And he showed us that I'm there with you. Just let me into your life. Let's live big together. Stop thinking small. My brother-in-law, Rabbi Shlomo Kadosh, Many years, he was the mashgiach in Yeshiva Belmar out in Jersey. And he had a Sephardic shul in Lakewood. Him and my sister, my sister, this, uh, this sister is the Rebetzin of the family. She's the one that my father said she was supposed to be the boy. I was supposed to be the girl, according to him, as a joke. And uh, 
she, but she's something special. She's really, if you meet this girl, I'd love to bring her once to speak on a Shabbat to the shul. She's regal. She's regal. She reminds me of my grandmother that in her, it's one of those ladies that when they sit, they sit like majesty. I don't know if you know what I mean. They have a certain aura about them that when you sit and talk to them, you feel you're in good hands. She has something. So my brother-in-law and my sister, they took a position after being granted a big position out in Montreal to take over the yeshiva and the Bet Midrash of Montreal. He was going to be the principal and the Rosh Yeshiva over there. And she was going to go out there with the kids. And they were going to also start a Sephardic shul over there in Montreal. There's many Sephardic Jews out there. What, a, what an opening. What a position. What a wow. They were given such an opportunity. And they picked up Lakewood. And they moved out to Montreal with their kids. And they started running the Yeshiva and the Bet Midrash and the shul and everything that goes with it. And it's so cute how her little kids now, they all speak French, all of them. Because in schools over there, they speak French. And what's funny is every time they go through border control or security, so my sister, my sister and brother-in-law, they don't speak French, but their kids do. So anytime they ask them something in French, their own little six-year-old has to translate. Ma, he said that you should take off your shoes. You know, it's like, it's very funny how you have the little kids and the parents don't have a clue what the guy's saying. And here's the little interpreters. Nonetheless, they've been going back and forth now for years. My brother-in-law, Rabbi Kadosh, who by his Shevet Brachot, when I made the speech, I ended off the speech with Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. So, <laughs> you know, but he's, he's something special. He came back to Jersey from Montreal for the wedding of one of his students from the yeshiva in Belmar. And you know, the wedding is over late. And now... He has to get back for yeshiva the next day. So he leaves the wedding at, let's say, 11, 12 o'clock at night, and he's driving now, this eight-hour drive, back to Montreal, all-nighter, just to be there the next day for yeshiva for his school. Crazy. They thought I was crazy, going back and forth to New Jersey for 15 years. This guy's nuts. Eight-hour drive to Montreal at night, late, alone. He told me the first hour, second hour, third hour, he was okay. He was already somewhere high upstate New York on the thruway on his way towards Albany, towards Buffalo. And he says, suddenly he starts to feel his eyes closing. And he starts dipping down. He starts doing the modin. He starts dipping down. He can't keep his eyes open. So he starts doing all the tricks. And we once talked about these tricks. He took some water and splashed it on his face. Oh, that woke him up for a few minutes. But then again, his eyes started closing. So he put the music on really loud to kind of blare and blast and keep him up. It worked for another hour or so. But again, his eyes started closing after that. It's amazing how the mind can get used to anything, even to noise, even to music. And we can fall asleep. He starts falling asleep, dipping down. The car starts swaying a little bit back and forth. The wheel isn't being held as well as it should at 80 miles an hour on the 80 on its way up to, uh, to Buffalo, New York. Quickly, he wakes himself up. He sees he doesn't really have control. Now, I know, when ladies hear this story, they always ask the same, just pull over. No, you don't know guys. Just pull over? What, are you joking me? I'm going to get this. He kept driving. He even did my trick. I introduced him to this trick. It's called the rubber band trick. I did this once in Jersey. You take a rubber band and you pull it out really far. 
and you hold one part onto the steering wheel where your hand is, and the other part right in front of your face. And the minute you start dozing off, BOOM! And it wakes you up in no time, and it works. And he did the rubber band trick, he told me. And it worked, one or two slaps, but you know what happens. He lost the rubber band. And you always end up losing the rubber band. You know rubber bands. They always manage to fall in between the cup holder and the seat. Good luck trying to get it at 80 miles an hour. He ran out of tricks. And sure enough, his head started falling asleep. He grabbed the shiur. Maybe this class will keep him up. We'll get his mind going. He puts a shiur in. He's listening to the shiur. But after another 20 minutes, his eyes start closing and closing and closing. And he's the only guy on the road. And sure enough, the car veers off and starts driving right at the wall of the mountain, dead head on. And at the last second, he's about to hit the wall at 80 miles an hour. He hears this honking of a horn, like a truck horn, like one of those fog horns. And he gets up and he literally sees the wall coming right at him. He sways right away, off the way from the wall, back onto the road. And at the last second, grants control at a car, out of, out of control. And he holds it back on the road, and the last second, his life was saved. He said, wow. Oh, my gosh, I almost died. I got to thank the truck behind me. He looks in his rearview mirror. And there's nothing there. He looks in front of him. There's nothing there. He's alone on the road with nobody. Where did that honk come from? Where did that loud horn, that blast that woke him up at the last second before he hit the wall, where did it come from? And then he thought, and he said, one second. He rewound the tape of the shiur that he was listening to. He rewound it to two minutes earlier, and on the tape was recorded in the middle of the shear of this rabbi that gave about 10 years earlier, this class, somewhere in Brooklyn, a truck was driving by the shul that this rabbi was giving a class, and the truck in traffic gave this loud horn, and it was recorded on the tape. 10 years earlier. And he happened to put that class into the recorder, listening to it, and the horn blasted at the last second before he hit the wall. He said, look at this, 10 years ago, Hashem knew that there's gonna be a guy by the name of Kadosh, 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 that's gonna be driving up an eight hour drive on his way to Montreal at 80 miles an hour with no one on the road, falling asleep, and he's going to need something to save his life at the last second. So Hashem brought this truck by the class and blared this horn and had it taped. So 10 years later, some guy is going to play the tape, and at the moment that he's going to hit, the horn's going to blare. Now you tell me if we don't believe in a very big God. You tell me if he is not right there with every single detail of our life. It's all he's begging is just let me in. Because the minute you let in such a big God, you can't remain small anymore. That's the moment that you learn what it means to live the life of a Jew. We live a very big life. We should be zocheh. You want to find where Hashem is? Let him in. Thank you for listening.